You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommy One Muslim Podcast with your co-hosts Seba Hassan and Uzma Jafri. This is Uzma. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Assalamualaikum, and this is Zeba. So, Zeba, tell me what fires you had to put out this week because I know you've been busy. So, you know, I've had, I always, whenever I come back from vacation, we all get sick. That is just something that we have to do. And last week, my oldest had strep and the flu. So dealing with a teenage um, man child, uh, if you can only (laughs) imagine what that was like, but alhamdulillah, everybody's on the mend and doing so much better. So I am extremely grateful just in time for me to start packing up my master bedroom for our final, hopefully, inshallah, last renovation for our house. But like, you know, it's always something with us. But what is new with you? I know I heard that you were you and your son tried something new together this week. We did. My oldest, as you know, is home educated and he was interested in archery, but really doesn't want to do anything on his own. He's like, I'll do it if you do it on me. And I did archery in PE. I think it was ninth and 10th grade and I loved it. I thought it was so great. Um, Of course, when I was a very zealous college student, I wanted my kids to learn all the sports that are kind of... um, promoted or encouraged by the Prophet and archery, horseback riding are two of those sports. So we chose archery because it's a heck of a lot cheaper and you can't get hurt uh, very easily unless you're really dumb. So that was super duper fun. I'm I'm really excited to, to start doing that with him. And so we're going to be doing those lessons for six weeks. It's like you're prepping for the apocalypse, like, yeah, basically, I think there's some apocalyptic story about, (laughs) you know, during the end of days, the Muslims will be riding on horseback and we'll be archers. So I'm like, okay, let's be archers. He was a little bit like, wait, I mean, aren't the archers who got in trouble in a particular battle in Islam? I'm like, yeah, they were, they were, (laughs) but we're not going to be those archers. So it was really fun. So what do we have to worry about in the world this week? Like, could you give me my two minutes of, because, you know, I'm the ostrich that puts her head in the in the sand. So could you give us a little bit of an update about what's going on and the impacts on um, American Muslims right now? Yeah, I don't think it even needs to be a two minute spiel. I've got like a 30 second one. Focus on impeachment. And a lot of this is not just advice to myself and mothers like myself. It's advice to our Congress and our lawmakers. Focus on impeachment. Don't get distracted by Iran as a war threat um, because, of course, it's lower now that Iran kind of made a show of a retaliation and the U.S. made a show of like, oh, we got what we want, but it's all a show. Um, Rest in peace, uh, Flight 756, the Canadian Iranians who were shot down by Iran itself, who admitted that they did it by accident, um, killing all 176 Canadians on board. So geopolitical fallout always um, involves a civilian loss of life. Since 9-11, a Brown University report, it's called The Cost of War, was published in 2018 and suggested that 480,000 Muslims at that time had lost their lives due to this war on terror. And I 
mean that in quotes, um, as opposed to 2,605 U.S. civilians lost in the 9-11 attack. So the loss of all life is important and significant, but what are we doing right now? Why are we doing it? We need to um, stop killing to avenge killing because that doesn't make a civilized society. Uh, that's a very, that's actually a really good point. And um, I definitely appreciate your 30 seconds on that. Uh, that's our soapbox for today, everybody. And we'll head into our focus topic, which is how we all became mothers. I mean, not the actual physical act of how we became mothers, but you know, love we and could, marriage. But that would be another episode. That's a whole another episode, <laughs> but love and marriage was last week. And now you've decided to start a family. And what are the Muslim American experiences with starting a family um, and raising a family and how it's different um, perhaps than our non-Muslim counterparts? So um, Osma, like when did you all decide, how long were you guys married, you and Omar married before you guys decided, okay, now it's time we want to strengthen our bonds and start a family? So we actually weren't married when we decided to have a family. It was oh the second my. time we met. Okay. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. At least we're honest about it. We're going to be honest about yeah. this today, everybody. Yeah. And so I'm, uh, I was third year in medical school and he was in his residency first year. And he said, you know, it's the second time we've met. So we're still kind of shy around each other and we don't know like what's pushing the envelope. Um, and so he goes, so what do you think about kids? And I wanted him to squirm a little. So I was like, I think they're great, <laughs> but I knew what he's asking. And so he elaborated. He was like, well, what do you think about having kids? He's an only child. And I said, well, you know, that's really the only reason I'm getting married is to have children legally within the bounds of Islam. Um, so I do, um, think they're a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you know I'm older and my career kind of there's a time limit for everything you know and so having children was time sensitive a and then b um you know, I was just in, in a rush to have them. So I kind of explained to him, like, I have no intention to avoid having children. And the sooner we get started, the better. That's actually a really good point. And, and it's something important for people to recognize, regardless of whatever uh, faith group that you're in, pre-marriage is probably a good idea to talk about um, family and family planning and what you want to do within a family and what kind of structure your your family life. Because I feel like marriage is so hard without that. And then when you have mm -hmm. children and you're kind of thrown into it, having a basic idea of what um, and how you want to raise your family um, is, is very important. So it's, I, I was joking with you, but I definitely think the first or second time, especially when you are quote unquote dating in the realm of um, Islam and Muslim dating or halal dating, as we like to call it, you know, you do talk about what your the whole point of the dating aspect. I mean, dating is the only word I can use, but uh, yeah. and getting to know the other person, uh, the, the whole point is that you're eventually going to get married, right? And, and in becoming, getting married, you're going to become parents. At least that's the hopes and blessings. Um, if, if, if you get to do that and where, where you want to go from there. So, you know, I always joke that Zephyr kind of said, you know, we're going to have all of our Z kids. And I was just kind of like, oh my God, apparently we're getting married. That's kind of how we kind of did it the backward ways too, but it ended up um, working out. So once you had that conversation and you decided to get married, I know yours and my um, journey towards motherhood was a little bit uh, 
pretty different. You had uh, some issues in getting pregnant, and I think you've been pretty open about that with our audience previously. So how was that for you? Oh, infertility sucks. Um, Whether you have it medically or you perceive that you have it. And um, in my case- And what does that mean? What does that mean? Perception. Perceived. So I thought that I was infertile, but as a physician and with more training, you you know, I struggled with it very early. I started my first year of residency as an intern, and that's when I really figured out the science and, you know, what is the medical um, definition of infertility. And it's if you've been trying for a year and you haven't gotten pregnant, you know, and there's like no abnormality with your hormone levels and and stuff like that. So I had gotten tested my first I think within the first nine months of getting married, because I'm like, I don't understand. And now that I I look back, I'm like, oh, it was less a medical thing and more an issue of Muslim novices to the physical stuff ineptitude. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, that's okay. I get there it. Was some like, yeah, there was some misunderstandings about how this is going to happen. Because we just um, don't and, know. I yeah. mean, that's the problem. Yeah. yeah. So you, I, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And then when I figured out the science, because my doctor told me when I met her within nine months of getting married, I was like, I don't understand why I'm not getting pregnant. She was like, well, you're in your fourth year. You just got married. You're about to move cross country. You've been interviewing for residency. You're going to start a very challenging lifestyle in July with your residency. I imagine that things will settle down by the fall and that's when you'll get pregnant. And she was dead right. She, she got it. So as soon as like the stress, the stress piece, the external stress, mm-hmm. you were able to relax and then um, your body was, because you didn't have any diagnosed fertility issues per se. It was just not happening in the way that you were hopeful that it would happen. No, but we did end up going to an infertility specialist um, right it was either right after or right as we got pregnant because at that point we met the medical definition because we'd been married for over a year and we had not gotten pregnant despite using no birth control ever. Um, I did have one trial of birth control before I got married and I had really bad side effects. And so that kind of petrified me forever. I was like, I'm not going to I'm not going to do that. Um, and, so, and plus I wanted to get pregnant. So there was no, really no reason um, at that point. So... Um, Yeah, we did see the infertility specialist and we were planning on doing IUI, which is intrauterine insemination, but we needed to go through some workup and she asked us to come back with the next missed period and alhamdulillah, never got that period. So um, she actually, when she was doing my ultrasound in the office, I saw my oldest as an egg. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. So she was like, you should use that one. It's ready. (laughs) But I think he was either on his way to getting fertilized or had already been fertilized. So I'm not sure. So after you um, had your oldest, did you have issues with fertility from that point on? Or was it just like that first time? Because you kind of had them back to back from my understanding. You know, the thing is, when you are struggling with infertility, whether like in my case, I believe it was perceived. Like I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. I was absorbing a lot of external pressure from the parents of an only child who wanted a grandchild very badly from my mother, who, as you remember from last week's episode, thought I had no eggs left. That's exactly Um, right. (laughs) So I, I have that. I have this very challenging work schedule where I'm working 80 hours a week and I have to find time 
to make this baby, which is really hard to do when you're super tired and busy. Um, and then I made a lot of dua, especially in tahajjud, because I was like, well, that's one of the best times to make dua. Every time I've ever wanted anything in my life, that's what I would do. And can you explain tahajjud for our non-Muslim um, listeners? Tahajjud is a voluntary prayer. So Muslims have five uh, obligatory prayers that they have to perform based on uh, the movement of the sun throughout the day. But um, tahajjud is that time between the night prayer and right before the dawn prayer. And Muslims believe that this is when God is at the lowest of the heavens. And he's like, ask me so that I may grant your prayers. And this is one of the more accepted times for your prayers. And it's completely optional. You, you're not a accountable for not doing it. But anytime I've really wanted something and um, wanted to have that alone time with God to just talk to him, that is the time that I've done it. And I particularly um, relied on the prayers of two prophets, Prophet Zechariah and uh, Zechariah. Yes, we all love that name. And then uh, Prophet Ayub or Job um, in other uh, scripture, that's uh, his name. So um, for Zechariah, I believe in also biblical scripture, he had children in very old age and Muslims uh, believe that as well. The translation of his prayer is, my Lord grant from me your, grant me from yourself a good offspring. Indeed, you are the hearer of supplication or prayer. And then the prayer of Job, the translation is, Verily distress has seized me, and you are the merc most merciful of all those who show mercy. So, you know, there's particular prayers that you want to make um, according to what you're asking for. And for me, I was really, you know, my whole life I had wanted to be two things. One was a doctor and one was a mom. And you know, God had granted me medicine. I was starting my career, but I was like, well, now I'm greedy and I want the baby. Can I have a fast, you know, before these eggs run out? So um, if you could just grant that my life would be absolutely complete is what I thought. You know, that was the story that I created. So these were the prayers and uh, when I used them at the time. When you make prayers like that, you got to be careful what you ask for because Allah opened the floodgates. And, and then it's like, like hello, within that. five years, right? Didn't you have like have the babies within five years of each other? Um, Six. The first three were born in three years. Oh, and my then, goodness. Yeah, because I started mothering at what, 2008 and I finished in 2015 was my last one. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I yeah. don't envy you, but I caught up to you. <laughs> you did. I mean, that's true. I started, yeah, I have to say like, you know, even before different. Yep. Yeah, so my journey was different and like, and you and I were kind of having um, a conversation before we started recording today because, you know, I've been pretty blessed in the sense that I haven't had any issues and um, I hope my kids don't listen to this, but three out of four were kind of accident babies and kind of just happened. And, and by accident, we, they weren't, planned by any stretch of the imagination, but obviously God has a better, a plan, an overall plan. And I don't, um, regret any of them. Uh, but the reality of the situation, I wasn't necessarily ready for them when they happened to come. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I just didn't know or know how to talk to people that, um, have had issues, uh, in getting pregnant or a perception of getting pregnant because, you know, for full disclosure, three out of four were on were birth control babies um on some so it You're doesn't necessarily work for, yeah it, so it doesn't necessarily <laughs> work for me um yeah. it, so that's why we had to go do a different route um for for for, for full disclosure but i just have a hard time because i have been blessed and you know being a mother has always been my number one um thing in my life that i 
I one dedicate to, hence this momming while Muslim podcast. And two is really how I identify myself. I wear multiple hats, but being a mom is one of them. So I just have a hard time. Uh, I don't know what to say to somebody that's going through something that you've gone through. So do you have any advice for people that are, you know, have a friend or a colleague or sister or cousin that that's going through infertility and how to provide them comfort um, in their time of, of obvious stress? Because it is a stressful situation for people that are going through it. Yeah. Um, I think first and foremost, it's really important when um, there's a married couple who doesn't have kids within you know, six weeks of getting married, within three years of getting married, I do not think it's an appropriate question to ask them. So when are you planning to have kids? You know, it's none of our business. And it's like, we don't know what their struggle is. We don't know what their story is. Don't rub salt in their wounds. Shut up. And maybe they have a grander plan than the rest of us who are just fly by the seat of our pants. Let's just have them. Um, you know, Omar did have the concern. He's like, well, isn't it going to be hard during residency and while we're so poor to have children and this and that? And I was like, listen, when's a good time to have kids? They're always inconvenient. They poop, they barf, you know, they can't talk. You have to do everything for them. When? Tell me when they're convenient. And he was like, oh, well, that's a good point. So, um, you know, maybe these people are smarter and they've got a plan in mind or maybe they are struggling. Um, with something, with conceiving, and we should just shut up, mind our own business. The couple is happy, leave them alone. You know, I personally tell people who are uh, married and have not had kids, don't travel the world, enjoy your hot meals and fancy restaurants and vacations and sleeping in every day of the week because it's never, ever going to happen again. The fact that you can poop in privacy, it will go away. So the longer you can delay it, the better. What's your advice? You know, my advice is, I mean... I don't really have any, you know, in mm-hmm. the sense that... Because you never experienced it. I, mm-hmm. One, I never experienced it, but I also think that, I, like, I'm a firm believer in God's plan, mm-hmm. whatever that plan happens to be. And and I don't know if that's come with age, you know, now in my 40s, I feel like I'm definitely more, I can control certain things um, and some things I can't. And perhaps this is just what I need to go through whatever it is. And I think it's applicable to fertility issues and non-fertility issues or, you know, any kind of challenges that we have to go through on a day-to-day basis. Like what are the things that I can control and how to stop the negative um, narrative in my head? And that's just what I'm going to try to focus on. And my advice to people is focus on your day-to-day and and not let the negative thoughts um, getting your way. Cause I think that that does add, um, an unnecessary stress to your situation and it's not going to be helpful for you regardless. Yeah. And I don't think anybody should ever feel, cause I mean, how I felt when I couldn't get pregnant was, you know, fear. I felt, um, inadequate, like, oh, I, there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. Like some of the women in my family who struggled with infertility and they were very distant relatives, but my mom had convinced me, you know, despite my scientific background, despite my medical background, my mom had convinced me that maybe I had inherited some of this and that's why I wasn't having a kid. So I'm broken because I can't have these kids. Or what I think is worse is 
I was like, well, Allah's punishing me for my past sins. Of course, I'm not going right. to have children because he doesn't think I'm worthy of them. I'm not worthy of completing this thought. And that was probably the worst thing I could do to myself because I was denying the first thing we believe about Allah, which is that he's a Rahman and a Rahim. He's the most kind and the most merciful. Why would he withhold forgiveness for our past sins that we've already repented and we've already, you know, committed to not repeating? Um, why would he not have mercy and give me this? So um, I think always believing in the best, the positive attributes of Allah is really, really important and not letting yourself get beat down. And then, you know, what I did find out when I finally confided in a really old friend of mine that I was struggling, because she did ask me in private, like, hey, what's going on? Are you happy? Is everything okay? I thought you wanted to have kids right away. And I explained to her at that time, and I got really emotional, like, this isn't happening. I think this, this, and this is happening to me right now. Allah hates me. And um, she was like, no, no, that's not the case. And don't you know, this person and that person and this third person had it too. And, you know, they did all these things. And I'm these are also close friends. And I was like, so hurt that nobody talked about it. I was like, why didn't you guys talk about this um, and let us know so that we could communicate? But there was no centralized resource for moms struggling with these things. And I feel like while a lot of non-Muslim blogs and resources and sites offer a lot of really important critical support for um, folks uh, struggling with infertility, they're kind of missing a little bit of the spiritual aspect that we need to always have hope in Allah and always have hope in that um, he's if he's not granting a dua for you right now, if he's not granting a prayer that you're making, there is wisdom behind it. Maybe it's not the right time for you, you know, and he's going to bring you something better. And I think remembering in those promises of Allah is going to be really, really important. No, I, I definitely feel that you're hundred percent right. It's the, it, it is the spiritual aspect and, and, and just even in general, in like the mental health field, like having more Muslim people be a part of that, um, de that group would be so great. And cause it will definitely provide resources for us because we do have s different challenges. Um, we're all the same, trust me, but like to your point, getting solace and comfort in a different way, uh, would be very, very helpful. Um, so let me ask you this, since you're the doctor, you know, how do you know, like once you get that pregnancy test and you've taken like 50 of them, right? Cause that's usually <laughs> what happens when you first yeah. are like, oh my gosh, like mm -hmm. in my case, it was like, oh my God, I can't believe that this is happening. But like for people that are trying, they're like, oh my God, super excited. And you've take like 10, 15 just to confirm. How do you know, like what are the signs and symptoms people can look for to kind of differentiate between like a normal, normal pregnancy versus an abnormal pregnancy? Um, well, first I'll say that the difference between a normal and abnormal pregnancy, you should rely on your doctor, um, in order to figure that out. And, um, you know, we're going to put in our show notes, some links to, I guess, the Bible of pregnancy, which is what to expect when you're expecting, um, yes. by Heidi Murkoff, I believe it is. And so sadly, you know, even I just I read gave that away book. my copy. Oh, okay, I just good. gave you away my copy too. officially. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm giving this away. Oh, no, I still have mine. It's part of my library. I'm not letting it go. So, you know, as a physician reading it, as a physician taking care of pregnant moms and delivering pregnant moms, I found it very, very helpful. Um, it was obviously not the medical textbook that I relied on um, because... I'm going to always worry about worst case scenario. That is normal pregnancies for the most part in that book. And so you should rely on that and on your doctors. Um, I think I'm trying to find, yeah. 
All right. And then, of course, you want to find your um, mom groups, seasoned moms who have gone through this, who can tell you like, hey, that lig round ligament pain is normal. You're probably having a girl, right? Oh, okay. Um, or So did you do, mm -hmm. okay, so back in the day, it was baby center. Does that still exist? Did you, did you do that? Oh, and it would be like, yeah, yeah, you yeah. joined your birth This is group, your week. Right? So yeah, it'd be yeah, like yeah. August, whatever. And then it gave yeah. you the week by week. And then you were able, I don't know if people still do that. Like I'm totally aging myself. Know. Does that even exist anymore? Yeah, no. I used to get their updates um, up until I delivered for, I think, the third one. And then the last one I didn't even do because I was like, eh, I don't need this anymore. Um, but, yeah, Kelly Mom, Baby Center, those were the places that I went yeah. to find out. And then a lot of it was just knowing medically what was going on. But I would still, as a physician, talk to my OB and say, hey, this is going on. Um, and I think that that's really important. Um, now, at the same time, while I'm saying compare notes with other moms, I'm not saying that you should by any means minimize any symptoms that you think are weird because your experience, despite the fact that it's relative, is important. And if it's really worrying you, bothering you, scaring you, you need to discuss it with your doctor. Um, so don't just stop because, oh, X, Y, Z mom, you know, she's had like 17 kids and it never happened to her. Doesn't matter. You know, you could be the special snowflake. I think it's really important for you to follow up. Um, at the and same even, time, even like morning sickness, all that, like it oh, changes yeah. per baby, per, you know, per person. Every pregnancy is different. So every, mm -hmm. every pregnancy is different and every person yeah. is different. So I think exactly. that's very, very key to remember. Yeah. I always tell my patients, everybody is different and everybody is different. So you know, um, at the same time as not minimizing your symptoms, I would also say, don't be a hypochondriac. Don't be a worry wart. The most important thing you can do is once your baby starts moving, um, after the quickening, I just always made it a practice to make my patients kick count and I kick count. Yes. So if my kid didn't get his kick counts, I was, I was in the OB triage and I was like, figure this out make sure he's alive, you know? Um, because again, I'm worst case scenario and you know, your insurance is paying for it. Just go do it. By the third time I did that, they were like, okay, we're, we're, we're not letting you go home. We're just inducing this baby because we're tired of seeing your face. That is a possibility. So, <laughs> so if you're going to go a lot, just know that eventually they're all going to be saying, okay, this is a really anxious first time mom. Just put her in the hospital and do a whole bunch of tests and possibly induce. And I know a lot of millennial moms now are like super scared of induction and and super scared of C-sections, which, you know, you should be. It's one of the most barbaric procedures out there, um, like to see, you know, it's very, it's very gruesome. The first time I saw it, I walked into my OB rotation as a third year student, like convinced I'm going to be an OB. I'm going to do high risk pregnancy. I walked into my first C-section. I looked up her uterus is actually sitting on top of her chest because they oh pulled it Oh my God. Out. I don't want to know that. You know, I had three, um, my Zan, my youngest, my Z4 uh -huh. was a emergency C-section. Okay. And I do have to say that it was extremely difficult to recover. I still feel like I re I'm recovering. Out. Yeah. Is that, is that weird? No. Um, and they thought like, you'll be walking out of here. Um, which the other ones were much less so quick sure. and easy, but he, he was just a very, from the, from the get-go, my biggest, one of my biggest blessings, but honestly, the delivery was super stressful and challenging. Um, Ted, did you have that experience? Did you have a C-section or a difficult um, delivery? Because yeah, that C-section, I feel like six years later, I'm still recovering from. No, alhamdulillah. Um, 
my pregnancies were all really healthy, really good. I do think I had diabetes with my fourth one, but I refused to get tested. Doctors oh, make no. the worst patients, so don't do that, okay? Like, I knew what to look out for. You don't, if you don't, please get tested, okay? It's really important. Really bad stuff can happen to diabetic mothers, but worse things can happen to their babies. So please don't do that. I put my child at risk, but I knew what warning signs to look for. Um, that was my last pregnancy. I was older. My body hurt. For the majority of that pregnancy, I knew he was facing my rectum. So if oh, you can imagine no. how awful that was. It was awful. Um, but that, was, what, that wasn't even the worst pregnancy. Like I said, all of them were you know, generally really good. Alhamdulillah, I was pretty healthy. But with my first, again, I'm working 80 hours. I'm pregnant. You know, I don't think it was related to a lot of the activity and the physical labor that I was doing. Um, I think it just, you know, it was, I had this weird placental issue and nobody knew there was no way for the doctors to tell until it actually happened. So he was born three weeks early because I started hemorrhaging and it was really bad. Um, I don't remember what happened after my delivery because I went into shock. I needed blood transfusions. So there was that complication. Um, and so for five hours, I had to be sedated because I was in such shock. I wasn't safe and they had to sedate me to kind of calm me down. Um, after delivery, as some of us know, you have, you know, all of us go through some um, shock because we've lost so much volume of fluids. You know, all that amniotic fluid is out of you. All of these other body fluids are out of you. Blood is out of you. Um, and so you do have the shakes, but mine was manifested with like, I was bouncing up and down off the bed. So I needed to be sedated medically. Oh, no. Yeah. So I didn't get to see my son for the first five, six hours of his birth. And he just basically sucked on my husband's finger until I woke up, woke up, which was really nice of him to do because he knew how committed I was to breastfeeding and, um, yeah, he did that for me, but I just woke up angry. Like I missed out on the first hours of his life. So yeah, that was my complication. Was Z4 like your most uh, complicated, was that the most complicated story you had? Well, yeah, because we ended up in ICU for a couple of weeks afterwards. Yeah, oh. so we were in the, and thank goodness for my brother and my, who was do, doing residency here and my sister-in-law at the time, because they essentially yeah. moved in. Um, to help with the other three. And I, I couldn't even see the other three um, right, because it was February. They're not allowed to come into the ICU. And um, and, and think about this, what Z3 was only like 24, 25 months. So he oh, was still a, a baby at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thank God for Harim. Like if she's listening to this, I have I to say, you, like, I, I love you so much. Um, really, because we did not have family, like if we did not have them here and then sadly they went back to Chicago, but if we did not have them here, I don't know what I would have done because like I was literally trapped in the hospital. Like I, I, my recovery was terrible. Zan's recovery was terrible. Um, unfortunately it was one of those situations where we had this emergency C-section um, and the doctors when he came out were like shaking their head. Oh, no. Like, and I'm trying to see that. And I'm like, is he not crying? What's going on? And, and Zephyr's trying to um, comfort me. And, and the truth of the matter is, you know, when you, you go and you think, um, did I get greedy? Right. Like oh, that was the four? thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was like, I, I was so blessed with the three that I had and I almost died and he almost died. And it's like, mm -hmm. did I get greedy? But I do realize that that experience made me um, appreciate 
you know, one, the support system that I do have, you know, with my, my brother at the time, my sister-in-law, my children, my husband, um, and our, our family that, you know, we make with our friends that were, that kind of stepped up and helped me through that process because the recovery was a long time. Um, and I, you know, and, and the, and I was also committed to the breastfeeding and, and this trying to breastfeed with a C-section and you, you're like, you can't even walk it. And he's in, he's in the ICU. So I'm trying to go to a different part of the hospital to go with him. And ultimately once he was stabilized, he was able to come into the room with me, but it was a traumatic experience and, and something that I think about, um, often. So like his birthday is a bittersweet time for me, right? I, I look at him and mashallah, he's grown and he's just like the spitfire of a kid. But um, I do remember his first year in general was a very traumatic year. So yeah. God has blessed us, you know, and that's all you can say. Cause you know, we didn't, by God's grace, regardless of a lot of these health issues that um, we did face with him, we never really had a, a loss, you know, so yeah. a pregnancy loss. And, and I do, um, I can't even imagine no. uh, parents that have to go through that because, you know, we were on the cusp a couple of times and, you know, I don't know how I would have survived, to be honest with you. Like, so for those moms and dads that are out there that are or have experienced that, like, you know, just know that I'm praying for you and... um I can't even imagine and you're not alone. And I have, um, I actually have a friend who, well, I just recently met her and she did lose a child. And, you know, I, I always think like, how do you even recover, help somebody like that or, you know, or how to, and she, you know, she posted on Facebook and I was thinking like, this is actually a really good lesson. She's like, you know what, you can even just say, I don't know what to say. Yeah. And that in and of itself makes somebody feel like, you know, because a lot of times you do want to ignore it, right? Or just, I don't want to bring it up it. And, yeah. or not talk about it. And, you know, that was probably the biggest lesson I learned recently um, that sometimes you can just say, I don't know what to say and mm-hmm. what can I do for you? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, again, been on the cusp a couple of times and by God's grace that, you know, you know, I, I'm so thankful that that didn't happen, even though we were close with him specifically. So I, um, don't even, I can't even imagine what it would be like to actually lose a yeah. child. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like, reg- you know, so there's like the spectrum of miscarriages, whether you have a stillbirth, which is, um, you know, the child is born usually like a cord related death or, you know, a, we have spontaneous, we have missed abortions. And that was a lot of what I would diagnose. So I was really used to letting mothers know when they came into the emergency room, like, Hey, this is probably a miscarriage. And they'd say, well, what are you going to do to stop it? I'm like, there's really nothing we can do. You know, when it's early first trimester losses, like, you know, there may be something, I think a lot of women, especially in the Muslim community that I've met who have suffered losses will blame themselves often and say, it's because I went to the emergency room, they did a transvaginal ultrasound, which is sometimes necessary for those early, early pregnancies to get a good look. Um, cause an abdominal one just doesn't pick up what's wrong with the peanut, you know, cause that's the size of your kids, like a peanut. Um, and they will say, it's because I did that. It compromised my cervix and I lost my baby because of that ultrasound. And it's like, no, please don't blame yourself. Please don't blame the doctors. Usually a first trimester loss. There's something that Allah didn't want coming out into this world. You got a taste of this. Now, you know, um, 
you know, what it's like. And in the Muslim belief, if you've lost any pregnancy, whether it's in utero or whether it's a neonatal death, you know, we do have the belief that that child, you know, will go to heaven um, because they've never had the opportunity to sin and they will hold a door of Jannah for their mothers, which means the door to heaven for their moms. And I think that that's a really beautiful supposed to be a source of comfort for these parents. But again, not having gone through it myself, I can only sympathize. I can never empathize because I do not know how they feel. And, you know, I think that we do have some lovely resources that we're putting up in our show notes. Um, A lot of work is being done because I think that the trauma that carries um, with a lot of women, because they don't talk about it. Like I, I know somebody very close to me who will never talk about her pregnancy loss. It is, if we ever tried to bring it up, she would bite her heads off. So it was like, you know, maybe quietly you can go to these resources. And if you want to talk about it, I would suggest maybe as somebody who suffered, bring it up to those of us who haven't so that we can be more educated, but if only if you're comfortable, you know, only if you're comfortable, but I think it's only through discussion that we can get better. Yeah, that's right. Right? So Zeva, you talked about Z4, but I want to go back to your first experience with Z1. Um, yes. How did you choose his name? So this is a really funny thing. Um, ask anybody that has known me since I was a kid, including you. And I have always liked, loved two names. Mm-hmm. And my two names were Zachariah and Zara. No way. And I, <laughs> I was always like, I am going to have my first son is going to be Zachariah um, or Zachariah, depending on how you pronounce it. And the reason why it was very important for me was the, the meaning. Obviously, mm-hmm. you so eloquently pointed out the dua and the meaning, and he's a very important prophet. He was definitely somebody that I resonated with for those um, reasons that you had stated earlier. And the, and the, and for me, being a cross-cultural name depending on how you would pronounce it, right? Whether it's Zachariah or Zachariah, the the meaning stays the same. And right, obviously, right. you know, we name our kids by the meaning. By good um, meanings. Or right. by the meanings. Like how, and I waited, you know, we had a couple of other names um, on the table and I wanted to wait for him. We kind of, you know, you probably did the same thing. You come up with a list of names and actually my friend, um, I had a friend that had given me like a Muslim name book and some of these things just kind of came out and, you know, we teased that we were going to name our, all of our kids Z names, but you know, we had non Z names on the table too. We wanted to wait and see what they um, looked like. And Zachy just looked like an old man when he came out. (laughs) He doesn't anymore though. (laughs) He doesn't anymore. But at the time he looked like this cute little old man. And I was like, you know, Zachary, it's such a heavy name, you know, yeah. and I always wanted to have his full name be said. Um, and, and it means may, may Lord or the Lord remembers or God will always remember you. And it was just so important for me. Um, one, he did look like a old guy and two, just the meaning of the name was so beautiful that, you know, 
like both of us saw him we're like okay it's you know we had a couple of other names on the table including Keon and Cyrus and a couple of beautiful names that, that in and of themselves but he just didn't look like any of those names mm-hmm. um but yeah for me names have a huge meaning and that is um a pretty important part of our naming culture in um, Islam and in, in, in the Indopak culture specifically um, in naming your children kind of what their meaning, it's more on meaning, I think, right? Yeah. Then it's meaning because that manifests in their personality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it manifests and in the personality. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, it, and for me, for Zara, like she was actually Kira for a long time, to be honest oh. with you. Like Zephyr and I were saying Kira, like nobody knows this because it's like an Irish name that kind of sounds thisy. And then uh-huh. my father-in-law, I love him. He's like the most blunt, um, amazing man by the way like such a great role model for the rest of my um men but like he would say everyone's going to say kira and then it's a bug and (laughs) and and i was like i want my baby to be called bug so kira in irish it was like a flower but kira in urdu was like a bug and i was like yeah i don't want people to call her kira so but when she came out she looked like a zara and it just worked out and now to this day i have to say all of my kids have told me that they love their names. So oh. I feel like I must have done a decent job. But how did you choose your first name? So um, in utero, my oldest was Zakaria. And I did not Oh, that's really? I didn't I know that. that no idea. Because remember, you started your um, motherhood journey, journey a lot earlier. A little bit earlier, yes. So, um, but that's okay. Was... A lot of people have Zachariah and Zara now. Like I was like, yeah. oh, who knew it would have yeah. been such a popular name? Loved the name Zakaria, and I, you know, I was making the dua of that prophet to have him. So I was like, right, exactly. And then on top of that, that was my husband's maternal grandfather's name, who died. Oh, that's beautiful. And you know, never really got to see my husband born or grow up or anything. So I was like, this would be a nice homage to Nanabu as well. And Omar was totally on board. And of course, there's a whole nother side of the family that did not appreciate that. But everybody in my family knew that the little lump in my tummy was Zakaria. And so a lot of people who um, saw me after I had him would call him Zakaria because they thought that was his name. Oh, that was his And you're like, no, it's not. Because of course, in my sedated state after having him, my husband sidled up and decided to change his name because he are went- you kidding <laughs> yeah literally he went to a completely medically compromised woman and was like you know played the emotional violin and was like can I change the name to this name that I don't know I don't know any Rayhans and I'm like then you are the biggest coconut I've ever met because I know 34 you know it is like one of the most common names and actually in the Muslim world Rayhan is typically a girl's name but right. in subcontinental people use it a lot for men. And so I, I compromised on Rehan. I had wanted it Abdurrahman, but there was some backlash about that because there were some family members who really did not want an overtly Muslim name. Um, right. Because they wanted to be able to, they were like, we don't want people to know that he's Muslim. I'm like, Who's going to be walking around with him? It's going to be me. Yeah, but, but but that's actually a really interesting point, right? Because par- part of my, I want, a, well, our last name is Hassan, right? So it's right. probably the most Muslim <laughs> last name you can possibly have, alhamdulillah. But I wanted names where my non-Muslim family would be able to easily pronounce them, right? So that was part of when we were thinking about the names was I wanted 
one, the meaning to not change depending on how you pronounced it. One, right. two, for my non-Muslim family members to be able to pronounce um, pronounce it um, properly, and t- three, like to be blunt with you, it really sucked when people, you know, can you imagine the substitute teachers when they would have to call your name in class and nobody would know how to pronounce it? I just wanted it to be mm-hmm. super easy for people to pronounce, but you'd be surprised by how many people mispronounce my names, even with all that thought, the thought I put into it. So oh then I gosh. realized it you should matter. just name them Abdul Rahman. Just name them what you really want. It really doesn't matter because yeah. people are not going to know how to say these names regardless. And yeah. um, it was funny because when I ha- was having Zaid, actually the name we were calling him for a couple of days before I sa- signed the birth certificate was actually Ilias. Oh, and, I love that name. um, yeah. And it just, you know, when you say it and you say it and you say it and you're like, he is just not an Ilias and, mm-hmm. or Elias was a, the other way to pronounce it. And literally over text, my husband said Zaid and it just stuck, stuck. and it felt and it was a Z stomach. name. You got to do so, it. And it happened to be a Z name. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you're Zaid. And um, now I have a nephew named Ilya. So I, it worked out for me. I get to have both names in my family. And I just love it. But, yeah. you know, names are a fun part of being a parent. You know, that's the beauty that we get to do. We get to create the first part of um, our children's identity. But something that people don't really talk about or think about are the rights that these Muslim children or children in general have. Mm-hmm. Um in specifically in Islam. So did you want to talk a little bit about like, what are the rights of Muslim children? Yeah. So this is something that I think uh, people are realizing now that there's this whole respectful parenting movement, but it turns out it's been a part of Islam since From its the inception. Very beginning. Yeah. Yes. So children um, in Islam have certain rights and um, obviously it's going to be love and care. That's like you know, please don't be a parent if you can't provide love and care to a child. Um, so most of us, if we've embarked on this journey, are willing to offer it. So there's that. Um, and then even before the child is conceived, the partners that you choose for yourself, your child has a right over that. Your unborn child has a right to good parents. So that means if there's any single people listening to this, I don't know how many of you guys are out there, um, but that you should look at your potential spouse as a potential parent and see, is this somebody that I could raise children with? Um, and that is also a right of children. We talked about arranged marriages on episode 43 last week, so feel free to tune in and brush up on that. Your child has a right to a good name within seven days of its birth, so that's super important. Um, some of the other rituals that are performed for your child, and this is from the Sunnah of the Prophet wasallam, or what he used to do when a newborn was born, is recite the adhan or the call to prayer that Muslims do um, five times a day before their obligatory prayers in their right ears, um, and then um, smear a little uh, date, like you take the meat of the date and smear it and put it on the palate at the top of the baby's mouth, that curved part of their mouth, and what that does is it, you know, hastens their suck reflex, which is really good for those kids who are late pre-termers who aren't really good suckers and will have a little bit of trouble at, at the breast because they can't get their suck right or their latch right. But even more important medically, I think what it does is it um, starts getting their bowels moving because remember they've been at rest in utero and now these kids are out. If you have had a child before- that gross black poop, right? The black the meconium. Poop, the greasy oh, junk, that little tar that they poop out for the first five days. You gotta get that out. You want to get 
get all of that mess out, it's really, really important to get it out. And the dates help speed that. that it, so it shows us like these these foods from the Sunnah, like the medicine of the Prophet, it's a real thing. Um, and I can say that as a physician that, you know, allopath and our Sunnah medicine can go together. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, and then um, being taught Islamic knowledge, which, which will come later, and we'll address that in later episodes. But this is at birth, um, I think, is is all really important stuff to maintain for the child. Um, and then do you want to talk a little bit about being a Muslim patient? Like, did you have any issues um, or feel like there were things that you wish – you know, we're, you know, uh, yeah. So like my thing is because it is a very, um, we're just more conservative, right. I'm not going to be walking around with things all hanging out. So having a, for me, having a private room was really, really important. Um, cause I just didn't want people coming in and out. And when I'm nursing, I did a lot of that skin on skin contact and I wanted to have a little bit more, um, freedom with that. And I, I don't even wear a hijab, but in general, I wanted to have a little bit of that privacy. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, specifically having a doctor that you're comfortable with. I, I went to, um, a practice that was all female because mm-hmm. I just felt more comfortable. This is not a Muslim thing or a non-Muslim thing. Just for me personally, I felt more comfortable. Um, and regardless of whoever, whichever doctor was on call, I knew I would get a female. So that was really important to me. Um, and honestly, like I, I thought about the home birth and all of that, but you know, Zephyr is very anti, he's like, you should have, if you have the medical, you know, if you had the medical, um, ability right at the, at your fingertips, why put yourself at risk? So we did, I didn't get to do my, um, hippie home birth, but, um, you know, you should ultimately just always feel safe, um, in your pregnancy and delivery, regardless of whether you choose to have it at the hospital or at home with, um, with, uh, you know, a medical expert to come to the house with you. You know, I, feel like it's such a personal journey um and it and it should be how you want it to be but also keep in mind it's never exactly how you picture it to be and you should feel okay having like if you decided I'm going to go get an epidural and you wanted it to get, do what you do in order to make yourself feel um, comfortable. But did you have any issues considering you, uh, you do wear hijab? Like, did you have any specific, like specifics for doctors that you wanted during the delivery process or were you in so much pain? You just didn't care. Oh no, I was never in any pain. Cause all of my kids were induced all four. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah. So you're like, I every got single one was induced and they were all um, vaginal deliveries. I never had a C-section. Um, and I scheduled all except two of those. Yeah. 50% were induced scheduled and 50% were like, Oh, we have to, because there's an emergency going on or whatever. Um, but like you, I chose an all woman practice and they shared call with another all woman practice. Cause I was like, I never want a doctor on call to be a male to show up. However, it was at a teaching hospital. So with, I think one of the deliveries, the chief, um, resident OB resident who they're very skilled was a guy, but I was like, Hey, I like you. You taught, taught me and stuff. So there's two reasons not to be with you because I have to look at your face. Yeah, That's weird. <laughs> not yeah. to work with you. And then that's second, weird. like I would just rather you not see my hoo-ha. So, um, it was great when you have a no and you're at the hospital where you work, like you have a lot of pull and you can get the room you want and the nurse you want and your delivery. 
I say is only as good as your OB labor nurse, right? Do you agree as a patient? Right. Oh I my totally gosh. agree with that. The nurse can make or break you. And if she says you can push, you know, cause there was a couple of times where the brakes actually got kicked up on my bed and they were trying to get me to C-section. One of those times I stopped them and I said, stop, I can get this out. Like I will show you, I can get this out now. And then one of them, the nurse stopped and she said, no. Dr. Joffrey can do this. <laughs> she can have Aww. this kid. Yeah. So it was like, you know, all of them. I By the last one, I think I pushed once. Might have blinked. I'm yes. not sure. Yeah. yeah I <laughs> know. You're like, oops, it I came know. out on the way to the hospital. No, Basically. that's actually, <laughs> that's actually right. But, yeah. you know, I, I feel like, you know, I, first of all, it was very eye-opening for me today to kind of hear your experience because we've never really talked about this. And because um, that was the period of our life where we we're kind of so busy being a mom and doing, it, you know, yeah. doing all doing it that we like, you just don't really get to connect with the people that you you would love to otherwise. So I um, appreciate hearing that story. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that with us um, and with the audience. And, mm-hmm. and my hopes is that for people that are going through it, um, perceived or not perceived, you know, like, please know that there's, um, hope on the other end and, um, inshallah, you'll get through this hard time, uh, this hardship. Yeah. And we didn't um, talk about adoption, but we do have um, a really great resource we found from wise up online in our show notes. Um, so, you know, while biological parenthood is awesome, uh, adoptive parenthood is also a sunnah and it is really, really important. I feel like a lot of people have misconceptions about adoption being haram or not allowed or forbidden in Islam. And that's not the case. So please get educated, read about it. And if you don't know enough, ask, we have a lot of, um, adoptive parents in the Muslim community now. Alhamdulillah. I'm so, so glad, um, because it's very much needed in our community right here in America forget about international adoptions, like just in America, we need it so badly. So please look at, look up our show notes. Thanks for joining us today and letting us talk about really these memorable times that we are so glad to not repeat (laughs) inshallah. And and first time on Facebook live, um, recording our podcast so that we did it. Let's hope it actually works, but until next time. All right. Assalamualaikum everyone. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma on Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Momming While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.